Isaiah chapter 66, verses 7, 8, and 9. Thank you, men. Thank you all that worked so hard on our music. It's a real blessing here at Fellowship, and we appreciate your effort that goes on behind the scenes. We've been uh, studying the book of Isaiah, and we've come to this rather obscure uh, verse in chapter 66, verses 7, 8, and 9. By the way, if you do not have an outline, would you please raise your hand? We printed some more, and uh, Zachary has it here for you. We've been looking at these rather obscure verses in chapter 66, verses 7, 8, and 9. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Who hath heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Now, that's a rather obscure passage in Isaiah 66, and those of you who read your Bibles consistently have probably read through that passage many, many times, but never really understood what it is talking about. What is it talking about the children being born? What is it talking about Zion travailing? Well, last week we found out that the travailing of Zion is the second half of the tribulation period. And we went over the tribulation period to orient you to the environment on the earth at that time. It was interesting this week, uh, through the feedback I got, I found that many apparently had never had a study of the tribulation to any great extent before. And so it was kind of uh, opened some eyes to see the progress of events that takes place in the tribulation. If I could have that slide now. We used this slide last week to demonstrate that. We're not going to go through the whole thing again this week, but I put it up there as a reference. We'll make reference to it at various times in our message today. <clears throat> Got my hair cut yesterday with my daughter, and uh, as I was there, one of my more outspoken sons came around, and we had a little bit of feedback concerning how the message goes and what we're talking about. And so I've tried to make some modifications to help you follow the outline a little bit, a little bit better. Uh, sometimes I follow my outline very closely, and when I do that, I tend to be in the pulpit and not as dynamic. And other times I get into my message, and then I don't follow the outline real closely. So it's been kind of confusing. But this morning, we're going to follow the outline very closely as we work through this. So I encourage you to stay with us in the outline that you have before you. We uh, last week talked about the sequence of events through the tribulation period. And we found that the next thing that we're looking for on the calendar of prophetic events is the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is when Jesus Christ will come not to the earth, but in the clouds, and he will resurrect all of the church saints, those saved from Pentecost till that very moment. He will resurrect those individuals into glorified, sinless bodies, and they'll go back to heaven with him. But at the same time, after he's done that, he will take those of us who are yet living, and we will be transformed into our glorified bodies as we rise in the air to go back with him to heaven. What a wonderful day that will be. But that will begin a, a series of events that is going to great, great trouble to the earth. Shortly after that, we don't know exactly how long, uh, an individual that we call the Antichrist, the scriptures call him a beast, uh, refer to him as an Antichrist, will sign a covenant with many for one week, one period of seven years. 
and that will begin what we call in theology the tribulation. Now, we talked about that last week, but I want to add a, a detail. If you look at your outline, number two, it has an asterisk beside it. Now, uh, these various numbers and sequence of things, uh, they vary a little bit. Some things are happening at the same time. We didn't talk about this last week. My outline is not, not totally, not thorough, but complete, but it has there what we need to know to understand what's taking place. And as we enter into this uh, tribulation period and we talk about the birth of the nation in a day, last week we looked at it from the overview and, and we saw the context. But that passage in Isaiah 66 that we just read a few moments ago about Zion bringing forth her children as soon as she travailed, that's a general statement. Like the Bible says in the book of Micah that the Savior will be born in Bethlehem, right? But that's just an overview. We know that when he was born, there were shepherds and there were wise men and all kinds of things associated with his birth. Well, the same is true here when we talk about the rebirth of the nation of Israel. That was a statement in Isaiah that's a general statement. doesn't give us a lot of information. But we know that when that happens, there are going to be a lot of other things going on that are going to develop and lead up to that particular event. And that's what we want to look at today. And the first thing I want you to understand today is that at the rapture of the church, the spiritual blindness of Israel is removed. Now, if we look at Romans chapter 11, we find there that God describes his program with Israel and the church. And uh, he tells his listeners that the uh, nation of Israel has been broken off that tree, uh, but that the church shouldn't become too proud because they could always be grafted back in again. And uh, the church comes to a point when it is removed from the earth, and some things happen with that. And one of them is the spiritual blindness of Israel is removed. Look with me at Romans chapter 11, verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, something that he is revealing now that has not been revealed in the past. Lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel. Now, when Christ was crucified and the church began at Pentecost, uh, there was a judgment that came upon the Jewish people, a blindness. That's what it's talking about here, in part. Blindness, in part, has happened to Israel. They were blinded. They, they couldn't see things. Now, we're all blinded by our sin nature and by the sin in our lives, but this was a blindness that came upon Israel. And if you look at the church today, you'll find out that though it started with strictly Jewish individuals who were converted and became the church members, that as time went by, there were more and more Gentiles until today the majority of the church membership and the majority of the people who are a part of the church down through history are Gentiles. There are some Jews. God, in a special way, in fact, has used some Christian Jews in a mighty way. But there aren't very many, and, the, and, and they are very resistant to the gospel. And that is because of this blindness that has happened to them after the crucifixion and the start of the church. But this text is telling us something. It says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Well, what is the fullness of the Gentiles? The expression fullness of the Gentiles only occurs here in Scripture. So we don't have the opportunity to go back and try to compare different uses of it. 
But when we look at other uses of the concept of fullness, like, for example, we look at the concept in the Old Testament where the iniquity of the people was full, we come to find out that whatever it is they're talking about has reached a point where God has reached a limit. God has reached a limit. And in his eyes, it, it is complete what he is doing. And so here when it says the fullness of the Gentiles become in, it's looking at the church. Because remember, the church started out with Jews, but it primarily became Gentiles. And when all the Gentiles that God has plans to be saved are saved, the rapture will take place and the fullness of the Gentiles will have been accomplished. In other words, the, the, the people in the church, the Gentiles in the church, it's full. It's arrived at the place where Christ wanted it to arrive when he comes and takes his church home. So this, this blindness will last until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, which is right after the rapture, because the rapture is when the, full, the church is full, it's, it's complete, and Christ takes it off the earth. Then look at the verse next, 26, And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away the ungodliness of Jacob. All Israel shall be saved. That's a prophecy from Romans, that God is going to do a special work in the hearts of Jewish people, in the hearts of Israeli people. And it's going to begin right after the rapture. Because he's going to remove their blindness so that they see more clearly what is going on. And uh, they're still unsaved, and they enter into the tribulation period. And then God sends the two witnesses and the 144,000, and they begin to evangelize, indoctrinate, and, and recreate the system with the temple. And so I want you to understand that at the beginning of the tribulation, this blindness is removed, which is the first step in the nation of Israel being saved. Now, just a, a short side note, don't confuse the fullness of the Gentiles with the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles is in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, just quickly to, to help avoid confusion. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So when is that going to be? Well, it's going to be when, when Israel and when Christ, when God and Israel take control of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. See, that's what it says here. Captain, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of Gentiles until. So it won't be trodden down after this point. And it turns out that that happens at Armageddon. And Armageddon, Christ comes back and he takes control of the city and of the Temple Mount and he sets up his kingdom. And then it is, uh, it is the time of the, the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. So don't confuse the fullness of the Gentiles, which is the church being completed and raptured from the earth, with the times of the Gentiles, which, which goes from 586 until Armageddon at the end of the tribulation period. Okay, with me on that? Okay, let's look on in our outline to the next point. And I've, I've uh, highlighted the points or shaded them so you can follow more closely. We're on point number three on the second page. Events of the first three and a half years leading to Gog and Magog. This was our message last week. I've taken the things that are described as happening in that first period of time 
and listed them here on this page. And I've taken out the angels and the trumpets and all the drama, all the grandeur that is a part of the text, and just put here the impact of those various events to us on the earth. And I don't want to go through this now, but I provided them for your study and care. But I want you to jump over to the third page, item number 10 with the asterisk beside it. And I want to summarize this. I want to say, well, what were conditions like at this time? We're approaching here the, uh, the, the midpoint of the tribulation. We're right here, right in this area, right here. The next thing on the calendar of events is the battle of Gog and Magog, or the battle of the northern king. That's coming next. But before we talk about that, what were things like on the earth? What was the circumstances, the situation, the mentality of people on the earth just prior to this battle after nearly, not quite, three and a half years of the tribulation? And this is what we find. We find that the peaceful, optimistic initial outlook that came when Antichrist made his covenant with many for seven years has now deteriorated. Antichrist has taken three nations, establishing a base of his power, and uh, dominates the majority of seven other nations. That's mentioned there in the chart, ten western kings. Israel is still under the protection of Antichrist. The covenant at the beginning of this time uh, gave protection to Israel. It supposedly solved the Jewish problem because the Antichrist is the protector of the people of Israel as we go into the first three and a half years. It says in Daniel 9, 27, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. See, he allows it to go on until the three and a half years through the covenant that he made, and then he breaks the covenant. So the idea here is that during the first three and a half years when this covenant is made, there is peace in Jerusalem, there is protection for Israel, but when Antichrist finally reveals himself for who he is, he reveals himself and that protection has vaporized, it's gone. So Israel is in a state of security and peace under the protection of Antichrist who has deceived the world thinking that he is some great politician but indeed he is one who is waiting to be fully empowered by Satan shortly. And then we notice over half of the world's population has died. I was very impressed this morning that, that Siri was able to tell me that the population of the world right now is 7,655,957,369, plus or minus one. <laughs> I added the plus or minus one. I was just amazed that she could give it to me to the last person like that. Well, you know, if you trace through all those judgments, you'll find that over half of the world's population will be dead by now. And that means that what? Some... Over three and a half billion people will have died in the last three and a half years. You know, you don't have control over you die. You could die at any time. And if you don't know Christ, you need to get taken care of before you die. Uh, we talked last week about can a person who goes into the tribulation through the rapture and has seen the gospel before the rapture, can they be saved? Let me just say something. They don't know when they're going to die either. And they may get two days past the rapture and not gotten around to it yet and be dead. Listen, if you need to accept Christ, you need to accept him now. You need to accept him now. You don't know what the future holds. And so we find that uh, over half the world's population has died. Governments are under extreme pressure. Try to think of this in terms of our experience today. 
Israel is under the protection of Antichrist. So all the world that hates Israel hates the Antichrist, right? Today, the United States is not the Antichrist, I hope, but is a nation that primarily is behind Israel and keeps Israel, along with their own sovereignty and military effort, uh, alive. The nations to work together. Uh, the, the Antichrist will be that person in this tribulation period. The threat of world war due to Antichrist aggression will be very prevalent. He's uprooted three nations and taken over seven more. And so it's a situation kind of like uh, the 30s in World War II when Hitler started moving into Europe and taking nation after nation after nation. And everybody was looking and saying, oops, what's going to happen here? And then we ended up in World War. So we have this tension of the Antichrist who was very aggressive. Regional wars are on the rise. Um, domestic violence is on the rise. Natural disasters are unparalleled in history. And human and material resources are unavailable because of the seal and trumpet judgments that have come upon the earth in the past three and a half years. And the public mentality is one of panic. The government can't keep up with everything. You know, you hear them now and then talk about the situation room where the president goes when he has a situation well, at this time, the government leaders have so many situations that they'll have to live in the situation room. They'll have a crisis of natural disaster, a crisis of domestic disaster, a crisis of international disaster, all at the same time. If you can imagine the unruliness and unlawfulness in our country today, imagine all the police. Just, it will be brought to a, a critical point of breaking so the world is under this tremendous tension. Just think of what this would be like. I want to tell you, I discovered as I studied this, that the Bible has a very beautiful description of what that would be like. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. I never read this text in this context before, but as I studied this, it came to mind. I turned to it to see if there might be something there, and I found out here is an amazing, accurate description of what people will feel like at the midpoint or approaching the midpoint of the tribulation. These are Jesus' words to his disciples. It says in chapter 24, verse 3, as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And now listen, now listen how this describes the world just about at the midpoint of the tribulation, but not quite. Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For a nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Beginning of sorrows. We're at the midpoint. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall be abounding, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. See, the saved person endures to the end of the tribulation period will do what? He'll enter the millennial kingdom. 
That's what it's talking about. You persist. You stay true to the Lord. And if you survive the tribulation period, you'll enter into the kingdom. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. There's going to be a lot of preaching going on at this point and for the next three and a half years. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. And that happens right after the first three and a half years. We're going to see that today in our text. Then let them be in Judea, flee into the mountains, and let him which is on the housetop not come down, take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back and take his clothes, and woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. This is an Old Testament system here. The church has been raptured. There is a temple, and there is a Sabbath, and so forth. Verse 21. For then shall be great tribulation, second half, such as was not since the beginning of the world, to this time nor forever, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders inasmuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before. Wherefore, if they say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even into the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered. An amazing description of what it will be like just before the battle of Gog and Magog. Now with that, we turn our attention to the invasion, invasion of Gog and Magog. Number four, page three. Clarification here. I think every student of the Bible gets confused about this, and I was confused for a long time. There are two battles of Gog and Magog. There is one... Ezekiel 38 and 39, we're going to look at, that happens during the tribulation period. There is another in Revelation chapter 21 called Gog and Magog that is the end of the millennial kingdom. The two battles with the same name are separated by a thousand years. One is during the tribulation period. We'll talk about when in the tribulation period in a minute. The other one is after the millennial kingdom. In fact, it, it terminates the millennial kingdom. The thing that's kind of confusing about them is that even though the first one is a totally different group of people from the second one, uh, and even though the time of the first one is separated by a thousand years from the time of the second one, the character of the people and the motives of the people who come is the same. They hate God. They want to destroy God's people, both cases. Uh, the location is Jerusalem is the same. And the uh, one hated is the same, which is God. So we tend to confuse those. But it's a different time, a different place, although some of the same characteristics and motivations that make us confuse it. So the one we're looking at here is not in Revelation chapter 21. 
That is a different Gog and Magog. There are two different Gogs and Magogs. And you need to get that straight to understand it so you don't get that confusion in your mind. Now, there are some differences of interpretation here that I'm going to just mention briefly about a couple of items. The first one is uh, where the battle of Gog and Magog, when it takes place. And that's a very difficult, detailed study. And it's not appropriate preaching material. I put you to sleep real quick. Uh, there's not a lot of spiritual application. But it needs to be settled before we can do what we're doing here this morning and, uh, and know where it's placed. So I, I worked on that. I worked on that for several weeks this summer. And on the back podium, there is a, a, an outline, about 16 pages, that discusses the different alternatives and why the midpoint of the tribulation is the best answer for the time of Gog and Magog from Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. There's about four copies back there that are laying there for those of you who get to it first. Conclusion on time of Ezekiel 38 and 39. And if there aren't any left when you get there, use the sign-up sheet, because I, I didn't think everybody would want that, but I know some of you will, so uh, it's there. But as I studied it all, I came to the conclusion that Gog and Magog takes place, Ezekiel 38 and 39, not Revelation 21, at the, near the midpoint of the tribulation period. So that's one basis we're working on. The second one is that the battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 is the same battle as described in Daniel chapter 11 verses 40 to 45 which is the king of the north. In other words, Gog, who is the prince or leader of Magog, the land of Magog, is the same person as the individual in Daniel chapter 11 called the king of the north. And when you put these texts all together, you'll see how they flow into an explanation of the events of the tribulation period. And so we want to look at the battle of Gog and Magog, which is in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. So turn there in your Bible, Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, and I'd like to just read it to you so you can understand what goes on here. Now, in your notes, you'll find a series of uh, observations or commentary on these verses. We're not going to spend too much time doing that because we don't have that time. But I want you to be familiar with this passage and the tone of it and what's going on here. This passage, Ezekiel 38 and 39 now, is talking about a battle that we're on the verge of right here at the midpoint of the tribulation, just before the midpoint. Gog and Magog uh, and the king of the north are involved in this battle. So listen as we read, and we'll make a few comments. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 1 in your Bibles, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog. Gog is a prince or ruler. Magog is the land. The chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Now go spend a lot of time on where these places are. But let me just say this. Gog is to the north. He is described as being in the sides of the north, the extreme north of Israel. Uh, he's very far away from Israel. And there are other nations that are involved here that are mentioned that are, are, are in the north and some to the east and some to the west. Many of them, interestingly enough today, are Muslim nations, but not Arab Muslims, non-Arab Muslims. And uh, the king of the north brings together a great army of allies from these different nations, 
and then moves south. We'll see how that develops in a minute. He says, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, and the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws. Now, what he's saying there is that the, the king has a plan that he's going to execute. But God is saying, no, I'm going to change your plans. You'll see how that works out. And I will bring thee forth, and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, there's nations to the south that are allowed with the king of the north. And Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all his bands, the house of Tagarma of all the northern quarters and all his bands, and many people with thee, massive army. Be thou prepared, says Ezekiel, and prepare for thyself, thou and all thy company that are assembled unto thee, and be thou a guard unto them. He's telling him actually, you know, train this army, make it the best army you can make. Verse 8, after many days... It's a long way in the future. Thou shalt be visited. God's going to intervene. In the latter years, that's a reference to the tribulation period. The latter years is the period after the church is gone and when the kingdom is, is approaching. Thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people. That's Israel. Israel were, were separated into dispersion across the world by the sword, by violence. And they're going to be regathered, and the regathering has already begun here. And so he's brought back from the sword, and these are the, the Jews are the ones brought back from the sword, and they're gathered out of the many people of the world. And he and he'll go against them in the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste. That's where the battle will be. But it is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. Uh, in other words, Israel is who they're going to attack. And now they're in security. They're, they're safe. They're, they're protected by Antichrist, okay? They've taken down their walls. They trusted in the, the government that's taking care of them, and uh, they feel secure. Thus the Lord God, it shall also come to pass. Wait, let me skip something. Verse 9. Thou shalt ascend and come like a storm. Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land. Thou and all thy bands and many people with thee. Just be like swarms of locusts in a locust uh, raid or, or invasion. And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages, and I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. That's Israel. To take a spoil and to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited, and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. Very jealous of Jewish wealth. Nothing new about that. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all the young lions thereof shall say unto thee, Art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take a great spoil? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say unto God, Thus saith the Lord God, In a day when my people of Israel dwell safely, shall thou not know it? And thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts, thou and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company, and a mighty army. 
And thou shalt come upon against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land, and shall be in the latter days. And I will bring thee against my land, that the heathen may know me, when I shall be sanctified in thee, O Gog, before their eyes. God is against Gog, but he is going to use what Gog is doing. He's going to let him, he's going to let him go down his path, his path of sin and rebellion and uh, hatred for Israel. And then in the midst of that, when, the, when he's ready to pounce, uh, God's going to intervene with these hooks. And thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud that covers the land. Verse 17, Thus saith the Lord God, Art thou he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants, the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring thee against them? Nobody knows for sure, but there's some references elsewhere in Scripture where apparently these in, this individual is mentioned. And it shall come to pass at the same time when Gog shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord God, that my fury shall come up in my face. The picture here is uh, an anthropomorphism. The fury in his face is, is an angry man. That's God. That's how he feels. He's very animated about what Gog is doing, even though he's behind what Gog is doing. Verse 19, For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking of the land of Israel, so that the fisher of the sea and the fowls of heaven and the beasts of the earth and all creeping things creep upon the earth, and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence, and the mountains shall be thrown down, and the sheep place, sheep, steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. Massive Massive. I mean, there's already been massive stuff happening on earth, but it, it doesn't. It continues. And I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains, saith the Lord God. Every man's sword shall be against his brother. Anarchy. So there's going to come, first of all, a great earthquake. Then there's going to come anarchy. And then there's going to come, verse 22, and I will plead against him with pestilence. And with blood, and I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon his many people that are with him and ever overflowing of rain. So we've got an earthquake followed by anarchy, followed by pestilence, followed by natural disasters, and great hailstones, and followed by fire and brimstone. Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Chapter 39, Therefore the Son of Man prophesy against Gog and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn thee back and leave the sixth part of thee and will cause thee to come up from the north parts and will bring thee upon the mountains of Israel. And I will smite thy bow out of thy left hand and will cause thine arrows to fall out of thy right hand. Thou shalt fall upon the mountains of Israel, thou and all thy bands, and the people that is with thee. I will give thee unto the ravenous birds of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. Thou shalt fall upon the open field. And I have spoken it, saith the Lord God. And I will send a fire on Magog and among them that dwell carelessly in the isles, the Mediterranean area. And they shall know that I am the Lord. So will I make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. And I will not let them pollute my holy name anymore. Did you hear that? And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, it is come and it is done. 
He says, when, when the Lord prophesies something, it's as good as done. It's as good as done. That's what the text is saying there. Behold, it is come and it is done, saith the Lord God. This is the day whereof I have spoken. And they shall dwell in the cities of Israel shall go forth. They that dwell in the cities of Israel shall go forth and shall set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers, the bows and the arrows and the handstaves and the spears. And they shall burn them with fire seven years. Seven years. So that they shall take no wood out of the field, neither cut down any other of the forest, for they shall burn the weapons with fire and shall spoil those that spoiled them. And robbed, they shall spoil those who spoiled them. So they've been spoiled by this group in the past. Remember that in a minute. And rob those that robbed them, saith the Lord God. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will give unto Gog a place there of graze in Israel, the valley of the passengers on the east of the sea. And it shall stop the noses of passengers. And there shall, be, there shall they bury Gog and all his multitude, and they shall call it the valley of Hammon Gog. And seven months shall they, the house of Israel, be burying them, that they may clean, cleanse the land. Yea, all the people of the land shall bury them, and it shall be to them a renown the day that I shall be glorified, saith the Lord God. And they shall sever out men of continual employment passing through the land to bury with the passengers those that remain upon the face of the earth, to cleanse it after the end of the seven months shall they search. And the passengers that pass through the land, when any seeth a man's bones, then shall he set up a sign by it until barriers have buried it in the valley of Ham and Gog. See, we're in an Old Testament economy here. To touch a dead body defiles you. So they want to get these bodies covered and out of, out of being exposed. Uh, and also the name of the city shall be Hananah. Thus shall they cleanse the land. And thou, son of man, thus saith the Lord God, speak unto every feathered fowl and to every beast of the field, assemble yourselves and come and gather yourselves on every side to my sacrifice that I do sacrifice for you, even the great sacrifice upon the mountains of Israel, that ye may eat flesh and drink blood. He's talking to the animals and the birds. Ye shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, of goats, of bullocks, all of them fatling of Bashan. And ye shall eat fat till ye be full, and drink blood till ye be drunken, and of my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you. Thus ye shall be filled at my table with horses and chariots of mighty men, with all the men of war, saith the Lord God. And I will set my glory among the heathen. We're going to come back to the rest of this chapter in a little bit. But that's an overview of the battle that's going to take place. You notice God is behind it all. He's in total control. This king is running wild. Tremendous force. Tremendous power. Tremendous army. And here's the Antichrist. And he has tremendous influence and tremendous power. How is that going to work itself out? Well, let's, let's move on. Where are we here? Okay, we're turning now to the next point. Interlude. Oh, I skipped the page. Number 5A, the invasion of the king of the north. Now, I told you that the king of the north is the same as Gog in Daniel. So turn to Daniel chapter 11. And where we saw in Ezekiel 38 and 39, kind of behind the scenes, what's going on as far as God was concerned, now we're going to see a, a 
lay out a timeline of events that takes place as the king of the north is laid out in Daniel chapter 11. Now, you've got to understand, in Daniel chapter 11, the previous verses 36 to 39, is talking about Antichrist. Those verses are talking about Antichrist. So in verse 40, when we read this, and at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, him's antecedent is the Antichrist. That's what was being talked about in the previous verses. Okay? And so, verse 40, Daniel 11, everybody. And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push him, the Antichrist, and the king of the north, Gog, shall come against him like a whirlwind. Remember, we saw Gog is described as a whirlwind zombie. With chariots and with horsemen, with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. This king is way up north. And uh, in order to get down there, he's got to go through many other sovereign nations. And he just cuts a swath across the map. He tears down and takes over nation after nation after nation. His force is so massive that there's hardly a battle. There's so many people in his army. And it has to be for what he's about to do. Because he's going after Israel, and Israel's on protection of Antichrist, and Antichrist is the other major power in the world. What's going to be the outcome? He moves south. And he makes an allegiance, just to get a little extra help, with the king of the south, which is the king of Egypt. So the king of the north and the king of the south, or Gog and the king of the south, have a pincer movement called in military forces. They have the north king coming from the north and the southern king coming from the south so that they can gang up on Antichrist and defeat him. A pincer movement. So they... Let me see if I've got everything here. Okay, so verse 41. He shall enter also into the glorious land. The king of the north is going to enter into Israel. Now Israel thinks they're secure and thinks they're under the care of Antichrist, but somehow, despite the care of Antichrist, they get into the land. And many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. Uh, as he came down through, he came down through on the west side of the Jordan River, between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Swept out those nations in Israel. These nations are over on the east side of the Dead Sea. So they weren't enough of an opposition or enough of a take, because he's motivated by the spoils, that he needs to worry about them. So, so when he gets done taking care of Israel and has defeated them, he moves south and keeps going and keeps going. Uh, let's look at the next verse. He shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. So he's, he made a pact with the king of the south, which is Egypt, for a pincer movement to get Antichrist. But once that's over... He invades the king of the south who can't stand before his massive army and he takes over Egypt. Verse 43. Time out. Let's go back. I didn't follow the outline. After Daniel 11.41, okay? Interlude. There are other things that are going on here. There is no place where the Bible says 
that the king of the north, or Gog, killed the Antichrist. But we know that he received a deadly wound and was killed. We don't have any statement how. But we also know that the king of the north, or, May, or, May, or Gog, uh, entered into the pleasant land which Antichrist was defending. So there's a good possibility that in order to do that, he had to kill Antichrist in order to get into the land. So we look at Revelation chapter 13 and we find this. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw likened to a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, dragon Satan, and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Okay, so the king of the north, or Gog, entered into the Holy Land, and quite possibly the king of the north afflicted Antichrist with a deadly wound to gain entrance into Israel. Well, the king of the north further wanted to move south because he was after money, he was after spoils. He wanted the spoils of North Africa. He had Egypt in his eyes and beyond that. But he didn't dare move on and leave a formidable enemy at his rear. And if he would have moved on toward Egypt and left Antichrist in power or still organized there, he would have had an enemy ready to come after him from his rear. And that's not a good military idea. So that's another reason why he may very well have defeated Antichrist and his armies. So we resume chapter 11, verse 42. He shall stretch forth his hand upon the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. So he breaks his ally and takes over Egypt. But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. See, he's after bounty. He's after spoils. And the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. He's just laying, His army is occupying Egypt now. And he's looking at the borders. He's saying, where am I going to go next? I mean, he's going to keep going. Libya, Ethiopia, to the west, to the south. More money money grabber. He's going to take control of these places. And so, uh, verse 43, and then verse 44. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. Well, what, you're in Egypt down here, okay? Down here is Egypt. What is north and east of Egypt? Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's heard a rumor about something that happened in Jerusalem. I want to make a suggestion to you what that was. It was Antichrist coming back to life. Because his rear guard is threatened now. And he doesn't allow, he can't, doesn't dare allow Antichrist to stand and take over his path of entry from the north and his rear guard. So what does it say? Tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go forth with great fury to destroy. See, that is the way he had it planned. But at this point, God puts the hooks in his mouth and pulls them around the other way, and he has no choice but to alter his plan and change his direction and go back to Jerusalem and take care of Antichrist. This time, the right. Do it right. And so he turns back, angry, 
upset about what is taking place. Okay, now let's go back uh, and look at some other things that are happening. Near the midpoint of the tribulation, Satan is cast out of heaven. Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 9. The great dagon was cast out, the old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And then Antichrist comes back from the bottomless pit in the dead. Revelation chapter 13, verse 1 to 3. Look at this, beginning at verse 2. And the beast which I saw was likened to a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power. The person being described there is the Antichrist. And his power comes from Satan, and his seat and his great authority. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. It was Satan. It was Satan that was able to bring him back. Revelation eleven seven, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit refers to his resurrection. Revelation seventeen eight a, the beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. You know, people argue about it. Was he really? Is it really true that he was? He died and he was killed and he came back to life. Who could do that but God? He must have just been resuscitated. But the Bible says clearly that he went to the abyss, the bottomless pit. And you can't go to the abyss unless you're dead as a human. So the implication here is that he, he physically died and was resurrected. Not in a glorified body, of course. In a mortal body, it was subject to death again. And you, if you look a little further here, uh, I don't want to get too far off the subject, but in uh, Revelation, you'll find that one of the other beasts comes along, does all kinds of miracles, and brings fire from heaven. So God, I, I can't explain it, God allows them, uh, or through God's, he allows them to have this power to, to do these things. And that is why it says that the very elect would be deceived. So we move on. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go forth in great fury to destroy and utterly make away many. What are the troubling times? They're troubling because Antichrist threatens his rear guard. They're troubling because how could he come back to life? They're troubling because all the world is wondering after him, after the Antichrist. Therefore it says he shall go forth with great fury. Fury because it stops his advance to uh, Africa. Fury because of inconvenience and frustrated plans. And he goes back to destroy and utterly make away many. This time he's going to do the job right. Verse 45. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. Now the palace, tabernacle of his palace, or the tents of his palace, his portable palace that travels with him as he goes forth in battle. And that's going to be set up somewhere in or near Jerusalem as he prepares to take control again. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yet he shall come to his end, and none shall help him. So the last we hear about him. What happened to him? Where'd he go? It says, And he shall plant the tabernacle of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end, and none shall help him. Well, if Gog is the king of the north... The answer is in Ezekiel chapter 38. 
verse 18. It says, And it shall come to pass at the same time when God shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord God, that my fury shall come up in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there will be a great shaking in the land of Israel. And I will plead against him, God, with pestilence and with blood. And I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon his many people that are with him in overflowing rain. And finally, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. He's all ready to take on Antichrist again to do the job right. And God intervenes and destroys him. Why didn't he let him get Antichrist? Well, because he has a plan worked out. It's going to bring glory to him. And part of that is getting rid of the king of the north. Gog. Well, number nine. Look at number nine. Shaded number nine. Two witnesses are killed and they're resurrected. Remember it says... And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. And when they shall have finished their testimony, that period there is half the tribulation, it's first half. The beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit, that's the Antichrist who's resurrected, shall make war against them, and shall overcome them and kill them. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life of God will enter into them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell upon them, which saw them, and they heard a great voice from heaven saying to them, Come up hither, and they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. So the two witnesses are gone. God vindicated them when he resurrected them, but nonetheless they're gone. They're not on the earthly scene anymore. And, and look at where the public is. Revelation 13, 4. And they worshiped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is likened to the beast? Who is able to make war with him? There's no sense in resisting him anymore. There's no sense in, in, in fighting what's happening here. It's, it's totally out of our control to do anything. Revelation 17, 8, And the beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and goeth into perdition. That's where he'll ultimately end up. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. Now think about this. The king of the north and his allied armies are gone. That's a massive number of people. That's a tremendous military force. A number of nations that have been depleted by sending individuals in war. number of nations in the path of the king of the north or Gog, as he came down, where the, where the nations were put in total disarray as he conquered them. Nations swept over in advance of the king of the north, including Egypt, to the south. The two witnesses are gone. The public is mesmerized. Who is likened to the beast? It's possible that the Antichrist, in fact, may even claim credit for the fire that came down at the end on Gog and Magog, the fire and brimstone we just read about. Because we're told, and that's what I was looking at a minute ago, in Revelation 13, 12 to 13, another beast comes up, and he exercises all the power of the first beast before him, and he doeth great wonders so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. So this beast that comes along, who has the same power as the Antichrist, same power, 
is able to bring down fire from heaven. Well, if he could do it, and he's got the same power as the Antichrist, then Antichrist could do it. So there's a possibility that Antichrist might deceive many by claiming that he is the one that brought the fire down on the king of the north. It's a lie, but you know, this is very observable in our world today. Uh, it was very observable by the way the Nazis handled World War II. Propagandists don't care if what they report is true or false. Because in a large society, and especially a society like this, that's in this situation that they're in, panicky, you say something and a certain percentage of the people are going to believe it. An individual gets up today on the news media and says something, a certain percentage of the people are going to believe it and take it for face value without thinking about it at all. And so even though the Lord did it and the Lord gets credit among the nations, there's still a certain percentage of the people who are going to believe the Antichrist. He says, no, I did it. Frankly, if he can be resurrected, how could he ever be defeated? He just keeps coming back, coming back, coming back. The stage has been set for Antichrist to assume global control. The opposition of the world has been neutralized. And what's he do? He marches into the temple and he sets up the abomination of desolation. He breaks the covenant, the seven-year covenant. He goes into the holy place of the temple and he sets up the abomination of desolation. There's four verses here that talk about it. We looked at the first three last week. Let's look at the fourth today. 2 Thessalonians 2, 4. Who opposes and exalted himself, the Antichrist, above all that is called God, and that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. You know, there's a lot of Israelites who have been living through the first three and a half years. Perhaps some of your friends that are Israelites today that aren't saved and enter into the tribulation period. And they enter in the tribulation period and their blindness is taken away and the two witnesses are preaching and nobody can, nobody can stop them because, remember, they have power to bring down fire and different things. So they can preach and if they have an objector, it's, and he's gone. <laughs> they, and the, and the 144,000, they've been hearing them preaching about all this stuff all the time. they got a Jewish background. They know about the temple and those things. And the Antichrist walks in and sets up the abomination of the temple. Wait a minute. There's something, there's something afoul here. Something stinks here. You don't go into the temple of God in the holy of holies where the ark sat and the cherubim over the ark and the Shekinah glory of God dwelt and where the Bible says in the coming kingdom Christ will rule from that spot. And he's gone in there and set up an image that represents him. And he's told everybody to worship him. Wait a minute, there's something wrong with that. And they turn to God. And they get saved. And the nation of Israel, large numbers of Israelite people, at this point, get saved. Now, how do I know that? Because Isaiah chapter 66, verse 7 says that as soon as they began to travail... Zion brought forth her children. That's what's happening here. The second part of the tribulation has begun with the abomination and desolation, and that is the time of travail. That is the time when Israel is really going to be under the heat. And that is the time 
when all Israel is saved. Now, what do we mean by all Israel is saved? We don't mean every Jew, every Israelite is going to be saved. Because Ezekiel chapter 20 tells us that at the end of the tribulation period, there will be some Jews who are not saved. Rebels are called in Ezekiel chapter 20. But the idea here is that the, the large proportion, the, the large number, majority of Israelites will be saved in a short period of time. And they will be saved before the great tribulation begins. And the great tribulation begins with the abomination of desolation. Right here. That begins the second half of the tribulation. So, we look at our outline, the national conversion of Israel at the beginning of the three and a half year great tribulation. In Romans chapter 11, God declares, And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. And so all Israel shall be saved. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. God keeps his promises. And he had promised this in Jeremiah with the new covenant coming for the millennial kingdom. Jeremiah 31 and 33, that he will give them a new heart. And that happens here. Because he has to keep his word from the Abrahamic covenant about the land. He can't be through with them until he's kept his word. The blindness of Israel ended at the start of the tribulation. Number two, the two witnesses have been evangelizing the lost and indoctrinating converts for three and a half years. Number three, much of our amazement, Israel, Isaiah predicted the fact and time of their conversion, which we've talked about. Number four, Ezekiel predicted also both the fact and time relative to Gog and Magog battle. The texts are the Lord's statements concerning what he will do after he destroys Gog, also called the king of the north. This event, the destruction of Gog, the king of the north, takes place just before the start of the second three and a half years of the tribulation or just before the placement of the abomination of desolation in the holy place. See, if indeed the way we analyze it's true, in the, in the first battle at Jerusalem, in Israel, he kills the Antichrist, and then he comes back and is destroyed himself. And then the abomination and desolation is set up. Uh, I have a handout in the back. Did I mention the handout already? I did, didn't I? Uh, that, that is relevant to this. But this is when it happened. And so Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 6 and 7 says, And I will send a fire on Magog and among them that dwell carelessly in the isles, and they shall know that I am the Lord. That's the fire that destroyed the armies. So will I make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them pollute my holy name anymore. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Israel will not pollute God's name anymore. There's a change taken out. They've been changed inside. They've gotten saved. Now we go back to Ezekiel chapter 39. We remember when we were in chapter 39, I stopped at a certain point and said, we'll come back there later. Well, that, that's what we're doing now. We're going back to 39, Ezekiel 39, verse 21. God is speaking. And I will set my glory among the heathen. And all the heathen shall see my judgment that I have executed in my hand that I have laid upon them. Listen to verse 12. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. And the heathen shall know the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity. Because they trespassed against me, therefore hid I my face from them, and gave them into the hand of their enemies. So fell they all by the sword. 
According to their uncleanness and according to their transgression have I done unto them and hid my face from them. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, now will I bring again or bring back the captivity, that's the people dispersed in the captivity of Jacob, and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel and will be jealous for my holy name. After that, they have borne their shame and all their trespasses, whereby they have trespassed against me when they dwelt safely in their land, and none made them afraid. When I have brought them again from the people and gathered them out of the enemy's lands and am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations, that has started. It's not complete yet. There's still going to be more regathering of people. Then shall they know that I am the Lord their God, <clears throat> which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen, but I have gathered them into their own land and have left none of them anymore there. Neither will I hide my face any more from them, for I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. Look at these key statements. Ezekiel 39, 7. I will not let them pollute my holy name anymore. Ezekiel 39, 22. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 28. Then shall they know that I am the Lord their God. Ezekiel 39, chapter verse 29. Neither will I hide my face from them anymore, for I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. The time when Israel will be saved as a nation is right there after Gog and Magog at the setting up of the abomination and desolation, which begins the great travailing of Jacob. Well, as we go on down through this, we come to our next point five. This point, look in your outline. How is the view that the conversion of Israel takes place at the Revelation answered? I'm not going to go through that today. My time is gone. Uh, I'll decide whether we want to go through it. But a large number of people who believe the Bible like we do think that the conversion of Israel as a nation will take place at the Revelation. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to get into that. Yeah. Resist the temptation. Uh, so let me just say this one thing. Just one thing. At the, at the Revelation, they say, when Christ appears, they'll look and see the piercing in his hands. And then they'll mourn for him. That's what the text says in Zechariah. Number one, you're not saved by sight. You're saved by faith. That's sight, not faith. Uh, number two, in order to be saved, you have to mourn. You have to believe. You have to trust. So if we didn't have any other candidates might be a good presumption. But when we have Isaiah 66, verses 7 to 9, we come to a different conclusion. You know, one of the biggest ways to make a mistake in your Bible study is to miss a verse. It's, a lot of times it's not because somebody misinterpreted a group of verses, because they just missed a verse that qualified something that was in the rest of the verses. And Isaiah chapter 66, verses 7 to 9, has been missed by a lot of students of the Bible. We're going to stop there, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll cover some of these other things maybe next week. What do you draw from this? There's a lot of things you can draw from this about God. If you read Ezekiel 38 and 39, as God made his plans, God was in control of it all. He didn't take one step in one direction, but that God didn't allow him or empower him to do it. 
God is in control. Secondly, God's people are going to face some hard times in this tribulation coming up. That's where I was going to go next. It is the time of their travailing. Because after that abomination desolation goes up, Satan's going to attack Israel, the woman, and, and we'll, we'll talk about that later. There's going to be tremendous uh, force released on Israel. And she goes, in fact, it even says in Revelation that God will give Antichrist uh, power over the saints, power to defeat the saints. So you've got to realize sometime in God's plan, your elimination, suffering, or death is part of what he's doing. It's part of what he's doing. We can't understand that, I don't think. We won't understand it until we get to heaven. and Maybe we won't even understand it then until we've studied for a few years. But when bad things happen, it doesn't necessarily think everything's bad for you. When, when God takes you out with disease or illness or, 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 or murder or whatever it happens to be, that doesn't mean necessarily God's against you. That means you're a part of God's plan. If you know him and you love him, you're still his. And by the way, when that happens, guess where you're going? The Word of God is amazing. That was the, the thought I wanted to share most. The Bible is historically accurate. That continues to be proven as men study archaeology, which is an imperfect science, by the way. Not really a science. It is historically accurate. It is prophetically reliable. As sure as the history books re, re, report what's happened in the past, the prophecies of the Bible are telling you what's going to happen in the future. And if you, don't, if you don't know about this, your worldview is really messed up. Uh, the Bible is prophetically reliable. It is spiritually profitable and essential. So the question I leave you with this morning is what part does the Bible play in your life? Amazing. There you go. Three books we've been in today. What are they? Ezekiel, Daniel, Revelation, and Matthew. The, the sermon, uh, the uh, great sermon of Jesus at the end of his ministry. And when we put those all together and study, God gives us marvelous rewards and uh, tremendous encouragement that we can trust God's word. But are you trusting it for the way you live every day? That's the issue. Father in heaven, Thank you so much for your precious word. Thank you so much for the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand it. We pray, Lord, today, if there are any here who do not know you, that they might realize that they have no idea of the time of their death. They need to come to you today and now for salvation, whether they're children, young or old. Any child that understands within the hearing of my voice, any adult who's put it off, Lord, that this might be a day of salvation. And Lord, that we might all be challenged to stay in the book and to pursue it with all our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.